this podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Thursday, June 6th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Hyde Amendment is in the news. This is the law that stipulates federal funds shall not be spent on abortion. It is named for the maniacal Robert Louis Stevenson character, who was once a man of science, but quaffed an elixir, turned him into a maniac, stalking the streets of Victorian London. No, no. It's named for Representative Henry Hyde, changed Victorian London to Reagan-era Chicago. Same deal. Anyway, Joe Biden supports the Hyde Amendment. None of the other Democrats do. That's because they are all, I think, as far as I could tell, 100% supportive of abortion rights. And Joe Biden is not. However, how Politico's Jake Sherman framed their stances was a little off. Elizabeth Warren said she doesn't like the Hyde Amendment, but of course she's voted for it. It doesn't take long to find an example of Warren voting for the amendment. For example, last year, Congress passed a government funding bill which included this language. None of the funds appropriated in this act shall be expended for health benefits coverage that includes coverage of abortion. Warren voted for this bill, so did Michael Bennett, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, Eric Swalwell, and others. Bernie Sanders voted no. Donald Trump signed it into law. Huh. That was from the uh, Politico Daily Briefing. So they all voted for a necessary law, a good law, which wouldn't pass but for the inclusion of this restrictive stipulation, which means they voted for the Hyde Amendment? I don't know. That sounds like something that a candidate would say in a slightly misleading negative ad, not something that accurately describes what their stance is and what their actions were. I mean, I've been through check-in at LaGuardia. Does that mean I support the TSA's wanding and shoeless security theater? I do not. And in fact, that example and the Hyde Amendment example are both quite shoddy. The other Democrats really do not support the Hyde Amendment, and Joe Biden does. Now, I do think, you may have been able to tell this from the show, I do think in most areas Joe Biden is sufficiently progressive for me. Also, almost as importantly, not overly progressive to my taste. Uh, That doesn't mean that he has the vim, energy, and smarts to do the job correctly. But on the policy stances, he knows where he stands, I know where he stands, and usually it's not too extreme. On this, he is. Well, maybe extreme isn't the right word because there's a lot of bipartisanship in this position. That's probably what seduced him into it. But I do think he's wrong. He's just wrong. Poor women need abortions. They can't pay for them. The government should provide this service. There are five states that voluntarily reimburse for medically necessary abortions. New York, Oregon, Hawaii, Maryland, and Hyde's own state of Illinois. What do you know? That should be the national policy. Biden does not want it to be, and other Democrats presumably do. It won't matter. It will never pass a Senate that has even 40 Republicans, but that is the right stance to have, and it is not the stance that Biden has, and it is the stance that every other Democrat who's important has. On the show today, in the spiel, I scream, we scream, you all scream because that damn ice cream truck is parked in front of a hydrant and not paying his tickets. Autos and ice cream and autos and jingles. Now, let's say I had a car and you wanted to donate it to a kid. Is there an easily recalled phone number to that end? No, 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 not yet. Don't play that goddamn thing more than necessary. But first, let us talk about 
that other branch of government. No, not the deep state, not the first or the second, the courts. Democrats would like the courts to be more democratic. They just don't do a lot to get there. Dahlia Lithwick is here to discuss this and also what anti-abortion activists were thinking. Well, I'm excited because Dahlia Lithwick's here. She covers the court for Slate. She's the host of the Amicus podcast. And, uh, you know, I've been talking Supreme Court things on my show for a while, a couple weeks. And without Dahlia here, I don't know, there's this aching need to ask her all the questions I've been asking you guys. Hello, Dahlia. How are you? Hi, Mike. So I don't understand, maybe you do, I don't understand the political strategy of Georgia... Alabama, Missouri, to go so extreme when you have a bunch of other cases that seem to be nibbling at abortion rights that seem to be going along quite swimmingly. Do you understand it? The only plausible explanation for this is that they've gone rogue. I don't think there's an explanation where it makes sense as a litigation strategy or it makes sense as a kind of constitutional theory to be stupid. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing, I think, is stupid. And it's not just stupid constitutionally because I just don't think you have five votes that are going to say we strike down Roe, no exceptions for rape and incest. Women are going to go to jail for the rest of their lives. Welcome to The Handmaid's Tale. That's just not how this court is going to do it. It's particularly stupid because, as you say, there's another road to effectuate almost the same outcome. And it's been a 20, 30-year process of nibbling away, closing clinics, all of these uh, trap laws, you know, that say... So so under Casey, there's this undue burden standard, right? Right. So that seems to be something you can attack. A woman's right to an abortion isn't. But if you define what's an undue burden very, very narrowly, then you can put a lot of burdens on women to get abortion. Right. And as you say, there is a case that the Supreme Court has to deal with, Mm -hmm. a Louisiana case. There's also an Indiana case that's been on their conference list. They just are not making a decision about it, but they keep slow walking. They're going to have to do something. And these cases are addressing the issue you just flagged, which is, is there such a thing as an undue burden that is so undue that these five justices won't you know, have trouble with it. And I think that it's clear. It's mm-hmm. clear that you have five justices and we include John Roberts. Everybody thinks he's in play. He's not in play. He dissented in Whole Women's Health. We know where he is. So the only question then is an optics question, which is how are they going to more or less create – it's not an undue burden to have chandeliers in every clinic, you know, to have doctors have admitting yeah, privileges. An X in their last name. Yeah. Now answer, answer me this – as these laws become go into effect and a second later, they're probably stayed by a district court. And that, of course, gets upheld by an appeals court. There's really no question about that. I right? don't think so. I yes. mean, I think some of them are hoping that, you know, the federal appeals court with a huge uptick in Trump nominees might say this is constitutional. Fine, but do, do appeals courts really would an appeals court really stake out a position no matter who's on it if they're an actual appellate court judge say we think Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided that's what the 5th circuit did with that Louisiana yeah. law i mean the 5th circuit said 
we're, we're okay with this. And then they created a pretextual reason to differentiate it. But I think that... But this, it, it seems impossible to have a pretextual reason to look at that Georgia law and say, oh, that comports in some way with the Roe versus Wade ruling. I mean, what I'm saying is the Supreme Court can flat out, they'll find a reason, can flat out say what the last Supreme Court decided was wrong, we're deciding the opposite. But the appellate court does not have that option. I don't think they do. And I think it's clear that, again, the option optics, even at the appellate court level of just being like, we're functionally overturning Roe and Casey is problematic. But I think that there is also some hope that that's the way you keep it from going to the U.S. Supreme right. Court, right? You get it struck down in the district court, struck down in the circuit courts, and John Roberts lives to fight another fight over admitting privileges. How is that not a rebuke? And how does that not hurt the anti-abortion cause? I think that the groups that were emboldened to like, boom, 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 you know, Missouri, uh, uh, Georgia, Kentucky, whatever, what they were thinking was, we got Kavanaugh. That was the totality of the thinking. It was not a deep and analytical, you know, effort to say, this is how it's going to play out. They just said, we have the state house and In fairness, I I will say one thing. The rape exception, the incest exception, all of that stuff makes no intrinsic sense if you, in fact, believe that a fetus is a human. Of course, there's no rape exception for infanticide. Exactly. So what they're saying is we're actually the principled ones here, right? We're not— And and, uh, jailing doctors doesn't make—that's fine, too. If you believe that abortion is infanticide, you would jail a, quote-unquote, doctor who killed an infant. Exactly. And and so I think what they're saying is this entire thing has been— been pretextual and the undue burden standard is pretextual. We've made the decision that life begins when we say there's a heartbeat. By the way, it's not a heartbeat at six weeks, but that's what we say. And so therefore, we're being internally consistent. And it's important also to understand, I mean, this goes without saying, but there's been this fight in the anti-abortion community for decades about whether we're going to be purists about this or tactical incrementalists. Mm -hmm. This is just a victory for the purists. Now, when they are are rebuffed at the court. I think your question is, does this set them back? And I think their their answer would be no. No harm, no foul. We tried. I want to ask you about the idea that Trump, by making his ridiculous claims of, uh, hey, let's, uh, let's murder a baby a day after it was born. Is he really, are we sure he's moving the Overton window? He's trying to. Or is, could it be the case that the people who agree with him no matter what or are extremely anti-abortion will cheer that? The people who know the truth will find it appalling. But to move the Overton window means that you shift the conversation to what's acceptable. Do we think that people who haven't thought it out think that there might be something to that? Because there, you can make the other case that what he's really doing and what this Georgia and Alabama ruling or um, law is doing is emboldening people who were always pointing to the fact that our rights were being slowly whittled away. And America maybe didn't really hear that argument, discounted that argument. But now that they're not being slowly whittled away, now that they're being stabbed in the heart with a knife, to use some vivid imagery, maybe that whole thing's going to backfire. And and the conversation isn't shifting in a way that the anti-abortion forces would prefer. Yeah, I, I don't know yet. Yeah. I know only what polling shows, which is you know, the majority of people are for abortion in many circumstances, not all. I mean, we know the polling has been fairly flat on yeah. this to the extent that 
uh, it's changed much. It tends to be, I think, slightly more supportive of the right to abortion. But it's not, you know, like like same-sex marriage where we saw right. the polling torque in a huge dramatic way over a course of, yeah. of several years. You know what? Everything actually in society changes more than abortion does. Yeah. No, it's it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. It's it's one of the few areas where public opinion is 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 doesn't change the way it should. And particularly if you think that the statistics are right, that one woman in four will have an abortion in her lifetime. That's a staggering yeah. number because we, not that many of us are going to have a same-sex marriage. Right. Uh, and yet we were really capacious. Maybe in a dalliance our... <laughs> in college, but not a marriage. <laughs> it's interesting yeah. that given that the strategy, I think, that was successful, by the way, in Whole Women's Health and in Hobby Lobby, less successful in Hobby Lobby, but the strategy of having women really speak out and say, I've had one, I've had mm-hmm. one, which we're seeing again this week, you know, women talking about their own abortions on the theory that if we could be familiar with it and comfortable with it and aggregate all of our information, we would understand that 25% of the women of the women in this country must favor abortion because they've had one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think as a strategy that doesn't seem to get the numbers where they need to go. And I keep wondering if this is just somehow different from other kind of polling questions, because I think it's just, and this is going to sound really dumb, but for a long time, it's occurred to me that we're very, very fanciful about, it's not going to happen to me. Maybe that's my explanation for why these numbers don't change, that there's a way in which when I get an abortion or when I miscarry, uh, well, you know, that's not my fault. But when other people do it, uh, maybe it is. I I don't fully understand the reason that we can't have more compassion for one another in this conversation, but it's truly an extraordinary thing to be able to say, you know, look at Alabama, look at Georgia, look at Ohio, look at Missouri and say – This isn't going to happen to one of your neighbors. One last thing I want to ask you, and this is all we'll talk about. So I keep hearing, and there is polling that supports the idea that conservatives and Republicans, there's huge overlap there, are more animated by the courts, that they vote on it more. Most of the liberals I talk to are pretty animated by it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that most people who are Democratic voters are animated by the courts. Could that change because of these laws and what's going on here with abortion? So what you're hearing now is me stabbing my own eyes out with the shrimp fork. Uh Um, Not kosher. Um, (laughs) Because, you know, since Merrick Garland, I have been saying uh, to everyone, including like small preschoolers, Democrats should vote about the court. You know, we had a, a vacancy that was being completely improbably and yet effectively blocked and three octogenarian Supreme Court justices in 2016. And by every single measure, the exit polls showed two to one margin. People who prioritized the courts voted for Trump. Right. This was a absolute gamble that Trump took. He would go out to groups of evangelicals and say, you have no choice. You're going to show up for me. And they did. And Democrats, uh, not only did Democrats running for the Senate not run on, holy hell, they're obstructing Merrick Garland and we're going to fight for him. But they just let it happen. They let Ted Cruz and John McCain go out on the stump in the fall of 2016 and say, if Hillary Clinton is elected, not only will we hold Merrick Garland's seat back, we will have eight justices forever, but if other justices die, we will go down to four and five seats on the court. They were so open 
about the fact that they were going to use the court as a hostage. And there was silence, like literally crickets on the other side. So now we're in a situation where we're living with that and the consequences of that. And do I think that it has reanimated the left to care about the court? Not really. Yeah. Not really. My diagnosis would be the courts are basically more or less working out for Democrats and liberals in their perception. They perceive the courts, well, what do I want? I want Affordable Care Act. I'd like gay marriage. Yeah, I'm getting all that. Whereas conservatives say, I want prayer in school. The courts are holding that up for me. I want abortion illegalized. The courts are holding that up for me. It's a much clearer calculation for conservatives. But but, but here's where that's crazy. That's their perception. I understand the perception. But in the meantime, you know, we get campaign finance gutted. We get voting rights gutted. We get gerrymandering approved. We get vote suppression approved. I mean, this... Mm -hmm minority rule America that we live in right now, you know, the crushing of unions last term that nobody noticed, all of this happens because of the courts. And I don't know why it doesn't become relevant or salient. I think that there's, you're quite right. I think that we hone in, when I think about, you know, my 20 years at the court, the days that there are lines around the block, it's abortion, it's guns, you know, it's a handful of issues. But on these boring process issues, you know, access to the damn ballot, I'm swearing on this show, but (laughs) access to the ballot, you know, equal, uh, fair and and open elections and equal access for, for people to the voting booth, those issues, you know, economic issues, putting a thumb on the scale of big business, you know, mandatory arbitration, all of the things that are in fact changing the world we live in. And we're like, yawn, boring process stuff. And I think that's where we got completely snookered on the left. We just, and I, you know, I know people are going to be like, well, I care. I mean, some people care, but we did not adequately message and, and I'm the first person to say, because, my God, Sheldon Whitehouse, every Judiciary com- Committee hearing talks about this 5-4 pro-business court. And people are like, <laughs> you know, stop, it's boring. Because it's boring. Yeah. But, oh, my God, it's changed everything. I think you're right, and I care. But what I would say is, if you look at, just to compare what is animating conservatives, they want prayer in school. They can't get it. It is clear there's no way around it. They can't get abortion banned. They want abortion banned. They can't get it. Whereas on the liberal side, I think the Shelby County, the voting rights decision, certainly affects the ability of black people to vote. And yet there still seems to be a way around it. The Citizens United affects funding of elections. There's ways to overcome and surmount that, maybe even legislative ways. So it seems less dire what the court is doing to chip away at the agenda of liberalism strikes at their heart less acutely than it does what it does what it has done to strike at what a conservative would hold dear. I think that's right. And I think in a sense it goes to the weird solipsism of this moment, right? Where if I want to pray, I want to stop abortion, I want my kids' school to be funded with taxpayer dollars. I mean, those are just individual, again, quite theological concerns. The concern that Minority voters shouldn't have to show ID, uh, and if they do have to show ID, that a gun permit shouldn't be more compelling than a driver's license. Those are just 
collective, aggregated, accumulated rights. And I think that we, again, have that sense that they're not as urgent or, you know, unions not as urgent. So what? But I think that it goes to this moment we're in where there's a tendency to privilege like me, me, me and my interests and for politics to flow out from there, which means I think you're exactly right, that people who feel thwarted as an individual are going to be pissed off. But I think that we are being thwarted by processes and systems that have been totally corrosive to us as individuals, but we can't seem to connect that up. And it's just a weird, in a way, I do love what Stacey Abrams is doing, uh, you know, on this question on voting and helping people really see this shimmering, you know, straight line between vote suppression and and their freedom or what Elizabeth is doing now, Elizabeth Warren is doing when she talks about, you know, corruption in systems, because it's so boring. (laughs) It's so boring. And then, you know, God bless these women who are like, OK, I'll teach this class on voting. Right. Here I go. I'm going to teach it. <laughs> Dahlia Lithwick is the host of the Amicus podcast. She covers the courts in all their glory for Slate. Thank you so much, Dahlia. Thank you, Mike. You may have heard via your earbuds, car stereo, smart speaker, or immersive shower sound system that podcasts are the future. We at Slate think so, too, which is why we're hosting Slate Day in New York City this Saturday, June 8th. The day starts with a performance by Ms. Cracker of RuPaul's Drag Race fame. We've got pop culture trivia where you can join Slate's own writers, a play date for kids organized by our parenting podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting and You Know Hit Parade, that podcast about the biggest hits in pop and music. They are going to have a dance party. Of course, we will have panels too, including mine, titled The Art of Podcasting with Mike Pesca. And my esteemed guests are to include Manoush Zamarodi, the host of a Radiotopia podcast, Adam Davidson, founder of Planet Money, who's gone off on his own new podcasting venture with Sony Music, and Nick Kwa, who is kind of the the dean of podcast media, media writing about podcasts. Go to Slate.com slash live for tickets. Slate.com slash live. See you on Saturday. And now, the spiel. Earworms are in the news. First, ice cream-related earworms. Actually, ice cream crime. And not Baskin-Robbins birthday cake flavor. But a big ice cream truck bust went down in Gotham. Operation Meltdown. Allegedly, uh, 46 ice cream trucks had a method of skirting fines which were levied for traffic and parking violations. So they'd get tickets in one year and then just dump their company, close them down, and reopen as another company the next year. So Candyland ice cream became, say, Ice Mania, which possibly morphed into Twirly Twirl Ice Inc. and wound up as Twist Ice Cream Inc. Okay, let us play the following game. I will name a company. 
Is it one of these false flag ice cream truck companies? Or is it an ersatz Michael Cohen taxi medallion company? You ready? Lady Laura. Okay, that's Michael Cohen. That's easy. How about this? Ice Boys. Ice cream truck. Mad Dog. Ooh, I'm going to go with ice cream. Yes, it's ice cream. And finally, Carlos Danger Push Pop. That is a shell ice cream company owned by Anthony Weiner. No, not really. It should be noted that the actual Mr. Softy brand was not involved in the actual crimes. Although their jingle is a crime against the ears, which brings us to Cars for Kids. The hard-to-forget jingle in service of a hard-to-believe charity will soon be returning with new visuals. Axios, the website devoted to pairing away the news's effluvia and context and sometimes conjunctions, somehow that was the site that helpfully noticed, and I would argue it's not a terribly essential bit of information, but I like knowing about it. They noticed an ad in Backstage casting a new Cars for Kids commercial. If you've ever been in a car, you know how the song goes. If you've ever watched TV, you know the terrible old commercial where kids are clearly lip syncing. I mean, are they even trying to lip sync? If these kids had to lip sync for their lives, it would be a, a massive sashaying. That's all, that's all I'm saying here. Do you know what the charity is, the Cars for Kids charity? You're not going to believe it. It is a legal defense fund for bailing out scofflaw ice cream truck owners. No, no, it's not. It's a Jewish summer camp. Okay, sure, fine. It's an Orthodox Jewish summer camp. Okay, is it the unvaccinated kind? I actually don't know. I do know they are gender segregated. Additionally, I do know the charity spends about half the money it takes in on marketing, mostly those commercials. Sometimes it, in some years, spends more than half. Charity Watch calls that below acceptable levels. I also know that the parent company paid tens of thousands of dollars in settlements to Oregon and Pennsylvania over their failure to disclose that the funds benefited the children of a specific religion, that religion being Judaism. Also, there was a series of lawsuits, including a judgment against the charity from a case in Staten Island about a promise never delivered about giving students at the Jewish Foundational School charitable educations. The Cars for Kid parent organization also lost almost $10 million in a Ponzi scheme. That's who you're giving your charitable cars to. $10 million, that's approximately 12,000 1977 Datsuns or Dodge DeSotos. Now, the attorney general of the state of Minnesota looked into cars for kids and found that they had been misreporting its car donation proceeds and understating fundraising costs on their IRS forms. I do have to say the exact thrust of the Minnesota investigation was one that I, as a non-Minnesotan, can't get too upset about. They were looking into the charity as giving too many of its benefits to people from out of state. Not that Cars for Kids lied about this, but apparently they took out thousands of commercials on Minnesota TV and radio and helped almost no Minnesotans. I think that if it were a good charity who helped people who really needed help, then you can't begrudge the fact that those people didn't live in Minnesota. To do so would be, what's the word, uncharitable. But it seems that the truly uncharitable entity is Cars for Kids itself. To cite the work of Charity Navigator, Charity Watch, and the nonprofit Quarterly, Cars for Kids is a really really lousy charity, just this side of a scam. So, in summary, great song, 
And by great, I mean horrible but memorable. And as a charity, decidedly less than great. And also, quite purposefully, less than memorable. That's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. You may know them as Creamsicle Man and the Soft Serve Kid. That'll be changing next summer. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts. While New York City named its Operation Operation Meltdown, she'd have named her Scofflaw Ice Cream Truck Takedown Operation Operation Traffic Cone. Just takes a second. The gist. I shall now share with you one last detail from the New York Times ice cream truck story. One truck owner named in the complaint was Dimitrios Tsirkos, who was sued in 2013 by the Mr. Softy Company for imitating their trucks. Mr. Tsirkos could not be reached for comment as he had painted himself white and was seen crawling around the neighborhood on his hands and knees, offering push pops to children. Oomperu depperu and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>